Hello, welcome to Historian Explaining. A historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if you want to become a patron and hear all of my materials, you can go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So for some time now, I've been doing comments on myths of the month, historical myths that people use to explain the past and the present. And what I'm going to talk about now is a very important myth, which is capitalism. So the idea that there's some sort of coherent system or ideology or theory that can be lumped together under this label of capitalism, which more or less roughly just means moneyism, uh, and that this can be used not only to discuss political issues, but also to explain the past as some kind of force uh, moving world events. So this is a very pervasive myth, and it's one that one doesn't often see questioned. It's thrown around casually, often as people will admit, with very different meanings, and yet no one seems to bother to stop and ask exactly what it ought to mean and whether it really means anything at all. And this is very salient right now because capitalism is more and more on people's lips at the moment in 2018, and that's because capitalism serves as the sort of, uh, you might say, dark twin or a negative counterpart to socialism. And socialism is very much in the news because of the growing success of a lot of political candidates, in certainly in the United States, who call themselves socialists. And this is really a new thing. There have been a handful of socialists in the U.S. Congress over the years, going back to 1910. The first was elected in, in Wisconsin in 1910. For many years, the only one was Bernie Sanders of Vermont. But now it seems that he's going to be joined by at least two more, most likely. Uh, you may have heard of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who won the Democratic primary in New York City. And she's gotten a lot of media attention. She's all over the news, uh, but she's not the only one. There's also Rashida Tlaib, who also won, won her uh, primary in Michigan, and that's just people going into Congress. Uh, there's also Lee Carter, who recently took his seat in the Virginia state legislature after beating the Republican majority whip in the Virginia State Assembly. So you might say there's a kind of small spike or even maybe a growing wave of socialists winning office in places where they never have before. And this has sparked a new discussion about socialism, about both the merits of socialism and also about what exactly socialism is. You have people sort of, uh, you know, sniping at each other, saying you're not really a socialist, you are a socialist. You know, it used to be for a long time that people would occasionally be accused of being socialists and they would always defend themselves and say, no, certainly not. Now the opposite is starting to happen. People are saying, I'm socialist, and other people are saying, no, you aren't. Uh, you're, you don't support this or that policy or this or that institution, or I'm a democratic socialist. There's no such thing as a, as a democratic socialist. No, you're a social democrat. No, I'm not. It's, it's total confusion. And this is only natural because 
socialism has always been a sort of political polemical term something that people either call themselves or call other people in order to advance certain political agendas uh, but this carries over this confusion and ambiguity naturally carries over to the sort of response which is well capitalism is the problem that socialism is trying to solve or capitalism is the superior system that is being threatened by socialism uh, capitalism is the sort of negative counterpart to socialism it's whatever socialism isn't and so it takes all of the ambiguities and uh, contradictions in the concept of socialism, reproduces them and then adds some more. You know, it's like in the Philip Larkin poem, uh, you know, they mess you up, your mom and dad, they don't mean to, but they do. They give you all the faults they had, then add some extra just for you. You know, that's sort of the relationship of capitalism, in quotation marks, to socialism. It has all of the contradictions and confusions plus some more. And I'll talk later about how this concept of capitalism originally came about and how it only makes sense that it's such a sort of nonsense confusing uh, category. This upsurge in success for socialist candidates in the United States apparently according to the available data is not the result of an increasing popularity for socialism. There's always been a significant portion of Americans ever since it's been polled on, who say that they have a favorable view of socialism. Rather, what's changed is that lower numbers of people are saying that they support capitalism. So particularly, Gallup surveys of members of the Democratic Party have for a long time shown around half of Democrats say they have a positive view of socialism. But it used to be just about eight or ten years ago that the majority of Democrats also said they supported capitalism. So the party was really sort of divided or ambivalent between the two, and some people said they liked both. Uh, well, that's changed. Now it's under 50% say that they support capitalism, and particularly among younger people, uh, people who are dealing with going out into this new economy, this new economic landscape, far less than 50% of them say that they support capitalism. So really the shift in opinion that's happening is not reflected in what people say about socialism, but rather in what they say about capitalism. That is sort of the, the Rorschach test, how people respond to capitalism. Uh, but as I'm going to argue, capitalism itself is an unresolvable, terminally ambiguous word. And in my opinion, it refers to nothing. And I think I'm, I'm going to try to demonstrate that in this in this lecture that it doesn't really refer to anything in the world and talking about capitalism and what's your opinion of capitalism is the same as talking about unicorns or poltergeists or or astral bodies uh, and and so I want to make clear I'm not making an argument for capitalism or against capitalism I'm not uh, in favor of it or against it I don't believe it's a thing I think it's a, a nonsense word as I said, it's a back formation from the word socialism, and I'll talk more about how that happened. And it inherits all the ambiguities and contradictions of socialism while adding some extra of its own. And uh, in a recent illustration of this I'll talk about first before I go into the history. Uh, the other day on Sunday, 
This past Sunday, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the candidate that I mentioned before, went on Twitter. Uh, she'd returned from a vacation in Maine, and she tweeted, quote, back home after a lovely few days off, enjoying U.S. examples of democratic socialism, like Acadia National Park, cafe co-ops, definitely top five breakfast sandwiches I've ever had, supporting worker-owned businesses, and so on. So these were the first three things she sort of listed off as examples of what she thought of as democratic socialism, a national park, cooperatively run cafes, and other worker-owned businesses. Supporters and admirers of Cortez went on to list their own further examples that they thought complemented her list, including the National Weather Service, libraries, and the roads that she had used to get back and forth to Maine. Now, this beginning of this conversation on Twitter, of course, quickly went into disagreement, division, and acrimony, as all kinds of Twitter conversations tend to do. Uh, and it's centered around confusions over exactly what socialism means. So one uh, Twitterer named Maria Garcia responded, quote, that's not democratic socialism, just pure American freedom. Adren Ramirez responded to her saying, quote, co-ops are still privately owned businesses capable of earning revenues shared by its members. They can operate and use income as they wish and can produce whatever they wish. Not a good example of your pipe dream for democratic socialism. End quote. So you can see here people sort of uh, arguing, in this case, by just listing off facts and assuming that that proves their point. And the implication is that if something earns revenues, uh, makes profit, it's run on its own rather than dictated to by government, that therefore it's not socialism. Another user, Friedrich Bodhi, responded to them, quote, publicly owned land for public use is socialism. Workers owning the means of production in their worker cooperative is socialism. If that is what American freedom stands for, then America is deeply socialist. So this is what I like to call another case of argumentation by labeling, simply saying X is Y. This thing fits with this label. Uh, and that sort of counts for an argument. Uh, and no one in the process seeming to stop and think, well, maybe this is just a label and it really doesn't matter. And there's no way of proving one way or another that something fits or doesn't fit under a label. Another user, Dave Bass, said, quote, don't you dare, in all capitals, call a co-op socialism. It was invented by Benjamin Franklin, and it is a model of democracy in business. I've been involved in one for over 20 years. Unlike socialism, everyone actually owns a share and actually has a voice in products and decisions. So this person seems to believe that if something is old and was invented by Benjamin Franklin, it can't be socialist. Uh, and they imply that under socialism, people don't have a power or a share or a voice in decisions. That's. That's his view. To which another user replied simply, quote, facepalm. <laughs> the implication being this was somehow self-evidently stupid. 
Another user, I love Lowe's, responded, quote, literally none of those things are socialist whatsoever. Socialism is where the government owns all property and private ownership of anything is strictly prohibited. So this is a much more extreme and you might say purist definition of what they think socialism is. Another called Millennial Democrats said, quote, these are examples of social democracy, not the same as socialism. This discussion of terms is misleading and it gets us slandered. The former, so social democracy means Norway. The latter, meaning socialism, is Maduro. So that's a reference to the president of Venezuela. And quote, only a place where the economy is fully state planned is really socialist, end quote. So we're getting immediately a sort of splintering spectrum of different notions of what socialism is just in this one conversation replying to this one <laughs> short tweet by Alexandria. Jesse Mullally said, quote, national parks are not a means of production. So this person seems to be arguing that public ownership of things like land is not socialism. It has to be means of production, whereas others argued that socialism has to mean public ownership of everything. Nothing can be privately owned. John T. says, quote, socialism means government owns businesses, not the workers. But good for you, end quote. Other disputes that opened up were over whether firefighters and a, a public fire department counts as socialism. Is it democratic socialism? Is it not socialism at all? Do co-ops count as socialism and do they work? Some claimed that co-ops always fail. Another pointed out in response that the particular co-op sandwich shop that the candidate pointed to in Maine has been a thriving business since 1979. So in that case, that generalization doesn't apply. Now, in all of this confusion and, and disputation about what to count as socialism and whether there's a difference between this or that kind of socialism, uh, naturally capitalism enters in, right? The, the shared assumption is that socialism is what capitalism isn't. And if something is socialist, it's not capitalist. If it's capitalist, it's not socialist. So not surprisingly, a user named Drew Knowles tweeted, quote, supporting worker-owned businesses is capitalism. They have a product they would like to sell. You want to buy that product. They say how much that product costs. You pay them that amount for the product. Then they repeat the process enough times to generate a profit. So this individual again recited obvious facts, assuming that that constituted an argument. And in doing so, he was assuming that there exists a clear shared definition of capitalism, such that all you have to do is describe a practice or an institution or a situation, and it will be self-evidently capitalist or not capitalist. Similarly, a user called Omelette said, quote, capitalism made your clothes, your bike, your car, your glasses, your coffee, end quote. So this individual under the name Omelette is putting forward a very common and familiar defense of what they call capitalism. So trade, commerce, enterprise, industry, all of these things seem to fall under the umbrella of what they consider to be capitalism. But not only that, but they also attribute a sort of 
generative power to capitalism. Capitalism isn't just a conceptual category that you use to label certain kinds of activities. It's a force. It's something that can do things, think things, create things. And in this way, they can say something like, capitalism made your clothes. Well, if we think of capitalism as just a, a theoretical or philosophical concept and category, then how can it make a piece of clothing? This person is talking about capitalism as almost a sort of living entity, such that it's not people or workers or investors or managers who made clothes. It's not the machines that made the clothes. It's not a business. It's not J. Crew that made your clothes. Rather, it's this sort of super entity capitalism. And this is very significant because not only do apologists or defenders of capitalism speak of it in this way all the time, but so do critics. People who say capitalism has destroyed the environment and so on uh, speak of it as this sort of monstrous force. And also so do all kinds of academics, including academic historians, talk about capitalism, about society was transformed by capitalism. They speak about it as something that can reach out into the world and do things, and that even has this sort of conspiratorial power to it. It's taken over the world. It dominates the world. So this sort of notion of capitalism as this sort of out-of-control beast or monster really... Uh, inevitably comes up and rears its head almost as soon as you say the word socialism. <laughs> this, this happens. Now the question, what is capitalism, is rarely debated. So as much as people constantly go back and forth now about capitalism versus socialism versus this other socialism versus this other socialism, people almost never stop and ask, well, what is capitalism? What do we mean when we talk about this thing, this idea, or this system, or whatever it is? This seems to be just taken for granted. And it's not even, its meaning isn't even debated in the way that the meaning of socialism is debated. But it is, as I said, just as ambiguous, or really more so, because for this very reason, that it is not just seen as a set of ideas or doctrines or even a set of practices, but as this kind of living force, this sort of supernatural entity that does things, that acts, that consumes and produces. So I would describe capitalism, as we tend to talk about it, as a sort of Frankenstein monster. Uh, and, and it might sound like, well, it's a Frankenstein's monster because it sort of grabs different materials and sort of brings them to life. But really, I would say more I mean it on the conceptual level. The concept of capitalism is a sort of Frankenstein monster. It's a grab bag of bits and pieces from different places and different times that get thrown together, stitched together, and then brought to life and turned into a sort of rampaging, unstoppable monster of kind of invisible power. And like Frankenstein's monster, it's not real. It's a figment of our imagination. So as a concept, it's a nonsense category comprising things with no actual necessary connection to one another. So let's look for a minute at how people attribute power to capitalism and how they habitually speak of it as this kind of living, acting creature and not just as a conceptual label. Well, lots of critics of capitalism who align themselves on the political right 
uh, speak this way. And it's, and it's these critics, excuse me, I mean on the political left, on the political left, speak of capitalism this way, and they really originated this way of thinking of capitalism. And I'll talk about that later. But if we look at the leading contemporary left-wing publication in, certainly in the United States today, if not throughout the English-speaking world, which is Jacobin Magazine, we can see a sort of barrage of headlines speaking about capitalism in this way. Uh, one recent headline read, quote, capitalism is ruining science. And this article begins, quote, capitalism devours what it can. And as it extends its domination, it comes as little surprise that the modern university becomes increasingly subservient to the dictates of the capitalist market. So we have this thing, a capitalist market, that dictates to people what to do. And more than that, capitalism is this sort of living animal. It eats things. It chews them up. It destroys them. But this article also, as you can see, assumes that this, this capitalism has a history. It came from somewhere. It has an origin. Quote, the university existed before capitalism. So this person is posing as as the defender of an older institution that is being consumed by this newer thing that they call capitalism. Another headline casts capitalism as a sort of evil villain and asks, quote, when will capitalism answer for its crimes? Okay, and this is very interesting. Think about this. Capitalism is a thing that must be answerable, that is responsible for its actions. It's a morally responsible actor that should be held to account. And this is very interesting because, like I said, with the clothes reference, you know, capitalism made your clothes, that takes the credit away from the people who actually did make the clothes, whether it's, you know, people working in a factory or the people managing the factory or the people who launched the business. Uh, you're, you're instead taking the agency away from them and attributing it to this thing, capitalism. Well, likewise, this Jacobin article has the effect of, whether intentionally or not, of exonerating the actual people who committed the crimes that this author is complaining about, the people who cheat, who underpay, who bribe, who steal. Instead of blaming them for their actual actions as individuals or as groups, instead you're shifting the crime to this abstract thing, this, this sort of ghostly entity, capitalism, that committed the crimes. And just a third example, uh, Jacobin recently, just a few days ago, ran an article criticizing Senator Elizabeth Warren's her proposals to reform corporate charters, which she called the Accountable Capitalism Act. And this Jacobin headline declares, quote, beyond kinder, gentler capitalism. So, so this author is, is arguing that uh, it, there's no point or, or it's counterproductive to try to sort of fiddle with capitalism, but instead it has to be replaced entirely. We don't want a nicer version of it. We want to replace it completely. And this particular article significantly cites the historian Ellen Makesons Wood, who is one of the leading academic authorities, you might say, if you can call it that, on capitalism and particularly on the origins of capitalism, which she believes lie in the 16th and 17th century English economy. 
and it quotes Ellen Mason's Wood saying, quote, the distinctive and dominant characteristic of the capitalist market is not opportunity or choice, but on the contrary, compulsion, in particular, compulsion to compete on the market. So here you have, uh, you know, a historian citing what they believe to be the most salient characteristic of the capitalist market, which is a phrase that, as we can see, is used basically interchangeably with capitalism, and saying that this is this central defining feature is something bad, something that we as free people and people who believe in freedom must reject. So hence, because this is bad, capitalism or the capitalist market is bad. Now, if we look on the right, we see the same pattern, just kind of in mirror image. Again, defenders of capitalism or proponents of capitalism speak the same way. And we can see a recent headline in the Wall Street Journal, which read, quote, Capitalism fixed my car. And this uh, columnist argues that uh, the car that she drives today is much safer, more reliable, and longer lasting than what she had in the 1960s and 70s. And she attributes this to a practice called trade-tested betterment because businesses and artisans and producers want to make the most money. They see what works uh, on the market and they improve what they produce. And this, she argues, has led to her better automobile. Now, one could point out on the one hand that automobiles have improved in safety dramatically over the past several decades, not so much because of market forces, but more because of the activism and lobbying of consumer rights groups like those led by Ralph Nader, who successfully secured laws and regulations protecting consumers. But even beyond that, uh, if even if we accept this columnist's argument about trade-tested betterment, it still logically seems natural to say that the people who practice trade-tested betterment are engineers, manufacturers, mechanics, who actually produce these, uh, these automobiles, and hence they, quote, fixed your car. But again, she's doing the same thing that these left-wing uh, polemicists do, which is instead taking the action and the agency away from those people and fixing it onto this thing, capitalism. Capitalism did it. Capitalism is sort of the, the you might say, is, is like the, the murderer that's always just escaped the crime scene just before you get there. It's the sort of invisible actor that made everything happen in some sort of uh, invisible way. But they're all, it's always the perpetrator, whether in a good sense or a bad sense. And more generally, we, we routinely see conservative or classical liberal advocates for capitalism describe capitalism as an engine, an engine of growth or progress, a creator of wealth, as if it was acting uh, and and as if it was uh, not the practices or channels through which people act even that, that made these changes, but it is this thing, capitalism itself. I think that this is rather similar to, say, calling typewriters the engine that created thousands of great novels. You know, I'm sure that innumerable great works of literature have been produced through typewriters, and yet it seems illogical to say the typewriters are the engine or the creator. Uh, it's rather people acting through typewriters who created these novels and who deserve at least 
most of the credit. But not so when we talk about economic growth, prosperity, productivity. It's this, it's these channels, these institutions, these practices, which we lump together under this label of capitalism. Okay. But again, the question that we have to return to is what is this thing, capitalism? What is this this sort of man behind the curtain making all of these things happen? Well, people, when questioned or when they are in one way or another obliged to explain themselves, they assign all kinds of different meanings to capitalism. For some, it means the domination of market forces, uh, as in that universities piece, capitalism is ruining science. In others, it's the institution of the corporation and its particular forms and practices like sales of stock and corporate boards. Uh, in others, it's a character or attitude, meaning greed and callousness towards suffering. In others, it's these more sort of abstract, diffuse practices like trade-tested betterment, like in that Wall Street Journal column. But all of these different things that people uh, uh, pick out and use as meanings for this word capitalism, all of them have drastically different histories, so much so that they can even be seen to be unrelated. The sort of domination of market forces over society and politics, uh, according to Ellen Mason's Wood, the Marxist historian I mentioned earlier, she believes that that's the essence of what we call capitalism, and she argues that it originated in Elizabethan England, in the sort of uh, obsessive improvement of agricultural land in England in the 1500s. Others say that it's the corporation and the corporate form of wealth accumulation, but that began a bit later and developed gradually, sort of stage by stage, from the early 1600s through the early 1800s, both in Britain and in other countries, including North America. If, it, if you're referring to greed and callousness, if that's what you mean by capitalism, well, that, of course, is timeless. It can be found in all kinds of people in all kinds of different societies. Some might argue that it gets worse under particular political or economic regimes. It, it gets exacerbated, but that doesn't mean it hasn't always existed in all kinds of human societies. Trade-tested betterment, if we go back to that example, well, that Wall Street Journal article itself claimed that that practice really came into vogue after 1800. So by that measure, capitalism is something very new. Now, all of these different authors, uh, when pressed, might say, well, this practice or this institution that I'm referring to, it's not, it's not the only feature of capitalism, it's just part of it not the whole, right? So, so you might question, uh, say, the Jacobin writer who argued against Elizabeth Warren's proposals for reforming corporations. You might ask them, well, does capitalism just mean corporations and the rules and statutes by which they're governed? They might say, no, 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 that's just part of it. That's just uh, an, an element of it. But then, of course, you have to ask, well, then what is the whole? What then is, what then do you mean by capitalism in general? What and what are the boundaries and limits of this concept? Or is everything capitalist? You know, how do you distinguish what do you count under the heading of capitalism and what do you not? 
and we have to note that the mere fact that certain things can be called capitalist as an adjective doesn't necessarily therefore mean that there is a clear, coherent notion of capitalism. So you can pick out an adjective, like say, red, that's an adjective, and you can assign and label things, this is red, this isn't red, that doesn't mean that all those red things are therefore part of a system that you can call redism. You know, the mere existence of, an, of a quality that you can name with an adjective doesn't mean that those things with that quality therefore fit into some kind of bigger coherent system. So we can't just assume that because we can label this or that as capitalist means that therefore all those things are capitalism. Uh, you know, in the same way that uh, certain people uh, as a character trait might be sloppy, that doesn't mean that there's such a thing as sloppism, or that when people are sloppy, it's because they're acting out sloppism. So, if there are these different parts or aspects of capitalism, like, uh, say, money markets or corporations or stock markets, and we can say, well, those things are capitalist, well, still that leaves the question, if you are making an argument for or against those things, why not just talk about those things themselves? In other words, if you object to corporations with traded stock, well then why not say, I'm against corporations? Why then make it a matter of capitalism? Why do you, when you're talking about one specific practice or idea or institution, why do you refer it to this bigger umbrella category of capitalism? Okay, so, so there's this ambiguity on the one level, the sort of obvious ambiguity of what do you mean by capitalism? And then there's, I think, the further level of ambiguity, the sort of hidden ambiguity of why is this concept so attractive? Why do people keep using it and turning to it when it is so ambiguous? Well, a lot of people might already object and say, well, surely we can resolve these problems and these questions if we just settle on a clear shared definition of capitalism. And certainly, it seems there must be a way to do this and that there are, there are already people whose job it is to resolve precisely this kind of problem. And those people are lexicographers. Right? There ought to be a dictionary definition right, that, that we can look up in a reputable dictionary that will at least give us a clear starting point for, for a shared meaning of what do we mean by capitalism. Yet if we look into dictionaries for their definitions of capitalism, they are highly varying, they're constantly shifting around, sometimes contradicting themselves within the same dictionary reference, it's sometimes referred to as an economic system, sometimes as a social system that somehow governs all of society. Sometimes it's called an ideology. Capitalism is an ideology. Sometimes it's called an economic theory. And we have to note that all of these things are, are drastically different. A theory is not the same thing as an ideology, which is not the same thing as a social system. For example, the theory of gravity is a theory. It's not an ideology, and it's not an economic or social system. Likewise, the theory of relativity or germ theory. These are not ideologies, they're not systems, they're just theories. Likewise, a certain regular practice that achieves certain ends, like double-entry bookkeeping, 
that's, you could say it's a system, but it's not a theory or an ideology. So by using this word capitalism, we're immediately engaging in this kind of shell game of, wait, what, what do you mean? What is this ism? Is it a practice? Is it a system of practices? Is it a set of ideas? Is it a set of doctrines? Or is it somehow all of the above? And if it is all of the above, then is it always all of the above? Whenever we talk about capitalism, are we always invoking all of these different meanings? Or can they be separated? Can we talk about capitalism, the ideology, as opposed to, at another time, capitalism, the economic system? Again, because those are two different things. Well, these ambiguities and open questions are never addressed. Okay, It always has this tremendous level of squishiness and mobility. If we do take it to be a theory, right, capitalism is an economic or political theory, then that implies that it ought to have a coherence, right? A, it ought to be an organized argument with evidence and reasoning and conclusions. The question then is, well, where do we find this theory or this argument? Where is it? The obvious first response that might come up is, well, Adam Smith, right? Isn't Adam Smith the sort of founding proponent of capitalism? Well, no. Smith never talked about capitalism at all. He never referred to anything as being capitalist. He talked about trade and about, uh, you know, optimum advantage gained from trade. But he never claimed that there was some sort of overarching system or philosophy that he was expounding, much less one that could be called capitalism. And in fact, that uh, idea that capitalism is a theory that you should promote and you should argue for never came up until the 20th century. And I'll talk about that more later. On the other hand, if it's an ideology as opposed to a theory, that tends to mean that it's a sort of set of unspoken assumptions, sort of accepted implicit assumptions that guide people's thoughts and actions. But still, then we have to ask, what is the content of that ideology? Where can we see it laid out def and defined? And what are its basic uh, ideas and uh, that, that frame it? And again, there's no source that you can really point to that, that you can say, this somehow illustrates the ideology of capitalism. Rather, it's simply uh, attached to particular actions or particular incidents. Like, for example, in that Jacobin piece, the notion that scientists have to constantly be going out and applying for grants and asking for money. That's a particular situation or a particular action that people can label as uh, capitalist ideology, but there's never any sort of coherent explanation of what is the ideology as a whole. Now, one could respond to this situation by saying, all right, well, there's all this ambiguity and squishiness, but let's pick one definition and be consistent on it. Let's just uh, be clear whenever we talk about capitalism, something being capitalist, let's just be careful to spell out exactly which meaning we're using. Well, there are a lot of pitfalls to this. One is that's extremely time-consuming and cumbersome and no one ever does it. And there's no reason to do it if you spell out exactly what you mean and what you're referring to by capitalism, then that makes the word capitalism unnecessary. 
If by capitalism you mean the domination of market forces, then just say the domination of market forces. If by capitalism you mean free trade, then you can just say free trade. If by capitalism you mean wage labor, then you can just say wage labor. Uh, the word capitalism becomes unnecessary and extraneous as soon as you give it a clear specific meaning. And this is one of the key red flags that you can see that shows that capitalism is a nonsense word. It's a word that is always standing in for something else more clear and concrete, and that never makes what you're saying clearer. It always makes it less clear. So why not avoid this vague, shifting, sort of grab bag category when you could refer to something clear and specific? And further, I would argue, as I think I'm going to, going to try to show, that it's truly impossible to define the word capitalism. It's inherently undefinable. It's not just ill-defined or ambiguous. It is undefinable. There are comp competing usages of the term that might sometimes shift back and forth, but it can't be defined. So let's look at dictionary definitions, like I said. Well, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is possibly the most widely referred to in the world, at least for English speakers, the OED's definition of capitalism is, quote, the condition of possessing capital, semicolon, the position of a capitalist, semicolon, a system which favors the existence of capitalists, end quote. Okay. Let's just leave that there for a moment, and let's look at an American, Merriam-Webster's Collegiate Dictionary. It defines capitalism as, quote, an economic system characterized by private or corporate ownership of capital goods, by investments that are determined by private decision, and by prices, production, and the distribution of goods that are determined mainly by competition in a free market, end quote. Okay, so one big difference between these two definitions should be obvious right away. One is that the OED definition is very brief, and it contains three very vague, almost cryptic meanings, only one of which is referred to as a system. Okay, so we have a condition, a position, and a system, and each of them is just defined extremely briefly using these very ambiguous, almost circular logic terms of capital and capitalist. Now, by contrast, the Merriam-Webster's dictionary definition is much longer. It is much more detailed and illustrative with all kinds of examples and qualifiers, and it specifically names capitalism as an economic system, right? So whereas in OED, it can be a condition, a position, a system, Merriam-Webster comes down on the side of saying it is an economic system, which possibly reflects the American uh, usage and point of view on the word capitalism. Now, that those differences aside, what are the important similarities in these two definitions? Well, the first important similarity is that both of them use the indefinite article. When they, when they use the word system, they use the indefinite article. It's a system or 
an economic system. It's not the system. And both of them then describe that system using non-restrictive clauses. So one of them says it's a system which favors blah, blah, blah. Another one says it's a system characterized by blah, blah, blah. So in this way, both of these definitions are simply assuming that something exists. There is a system that we're talking about and referring to. But it uses this indefinite article. It's not a specific system that can be identified. Rather, it's something that can be described or characterized by listing off its features, as Merriam-Webster does. It does this. It, it has investments. It has prices, production, blah, 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 blah. These things characterize it or lists its effects. So in the OED definition, it's a system that favors the existence of capitalists. That's its outcome or effect. Now, this is very uh, significant because this means that it's not really a definition at all. So neither of these so-called definitions can point to any unique distinguishing nature or character of capitalism. Okay, they cannot define it. All of these things can be found in any sort of society around the globe. Okay, things like, you know, wages or prices or investment, you know, those exist in all kinds of countries under all kinds of governments. There's no specific thing that they can point to that says this is capitalism and this is what definitely sets it apart from any other economic system. These aspects are all detachable from their context, and in hence, they all describe capitalism, but they don't define it. So let's look for a little more at this distinction between defining a thing and describing it. So when you have a thing in front of you, like say I'm holding a wooden object in my hand, there are two types of questions you can ask about that thing I'm holding. You can ask, what is the thing? What is it? And that requires pointing to something defining or distinguishing that puts it decisively into a unique category. So it's something distinctive and necessary to the thing. Or you can ask, how is it characterized? Things like, what does it look like? What does it feel like? What are its features? What do you associate it with? And that's something very different. So when you describe the qualities of a thing, all those things must be either essential to the thing or inessential, separable, that can be detached and applied to other things. So the first set of qualities define it, right? Putting limits and boundaries around what it is and what it isn't, identifying it. Whereas the second is merely describing it, but without identifying precisely what it is. So suppose I was holding this wooden object and someone were to ask, uh, tell me about what you're holding in your hand. I could say, well, it's square shaped. It's flat. It's made of a dark wood material. And there's any number of things that could be. I could even give you dimensions of exactly how big it is. But people would still be confused. What, what is it? You won't know what it is until I tell you it's a trivet. Right? And a trivet is a flat object that is designed and created in order to put beneath a hot dish in order to protect the table or the surface that you're putting the dish down upon. That's what a trivet is. 
If it's not that and if it doesn't do that, it's not a trivet, right? So a trivet is a thing with a definition, not just a, a description. And likewise, I could say, uh, I could come home one day and say, oh, I met a lady and had a conversation with her on the street. And you, you could ask me, who did you have a conversation with? And I could say, well, she had a big poofy hair and a leather purse and she was walking a dog. Uh, well, that's nice, that's a description, but I still can't tell who you're talking about. And then I could say, well, she's the woman who's married to Mr. Kurtz and she lives at 24 Prospect Street. Well, once I tell you that, then you have specific identifying information so that you could know precisely whom I'm talking about, right? So it's the, so in this way, a definition is like an identification. It's something that absolutely distinguishes a thing from something else. And this is, this is what I take to, to be a definition in the strict sense. And if you ever try to do this with capitalism, it will always break down. It never makes sense to talk about capitalism rather than talk about the more specific, defined thing that you're actually dealing with. So you can only discuss capitalism by characterizing it and describing it using qualities that are separable from it and can apply to all kinds of other situations or regimes. So here are some commonly named features of capitalism or aspects of capitalism that people sometimes point to when they're trying to tell you what capitalism is. Uh, they include private ownership of the means of production. That's a very technical one. Market exchange or market economy. Wage labor. Capital accumulation. Surplus value and profit making and the domination of the market over society. So most of these I've already mentioned before. Also, it sometimes is described as the ideas or doctrines or attitudes that in some way support or endorse any of those things that I just named. Now the fact is all of these can be found in pretty much any society on earth. Uh, certainly almost any society on Earth today, and most of the historical societies that we know through recorded history. And all of them have developed and can be found in all kinds of societies ranging from the ancient world, uh, you know, the Bronze Age, right up through the Middle Ages, up to modern day and to modern states like communist China or India or Latin America. Markets and uh, currency exchange, at least in the abstract, uh, happen in hunter-gatherer societies, right? People barter and exchange, and sometimes they put value on valuable objects. Actual formal currency as a medium of exchange began in ancient Mesopotamia, somewhere around 6,000 years ago. Wage labor and class conflict we know for certain existed in ancient Egypt in the late Bronze Age, and the first recorded labor strike happened in the 12th century BC at a pyramid building and tomb building site in Egypt when people were not receiving their wages as frequently and as regularly as they expected. They went on strike and demanded promptness and full payment. Uh, so that has a history going back to ancient Egypt. 
If it means extraction of surplus value from workers, well, that was certainly happening in Roman workshops, whether it was you know, olive presses or glass-making workshops. Uh, people were extracting uh, surplus value in the form of profit from their employees. If it's banking and investment and capital accumulation, then that was happening in medieval Italy, and there were very sophisticated banks and accounting, money lending, and investing in medieval Venice, Florence, Milan, and other Italian cities. If it means large-scale reinvestment and improvement, then that, as Ellen Mason's Wood argues, goes back to England in the 1500s. She calls this agrarian capitalism, in her words. If it means large-scale industrialism, like what Marx and Engels were talking about, well, then that goes back to the early 19th century in Britain, the Low Countries, Germany, and other places. So all of these practices and institutions that we put under this heading of capitalism, all of them are detachable, independent, and all of them can appear anywhere in all kinds of different societies. Even if we look at them cumulatively, that one sort of layers on top of the other, that money exchange allows wage labor, which allows banking, and so on, even still, this only means an accumulation has happened. It doesn't mean that these add up to a coherent system or coherent whole. And so-called communist countries, uh, you know, we can see that these things are detachable and independent because modern so-called communist countries like the USSR or communist China, they have all of the above, you know, money, wage labor, banking, reinvestment, industrialism, all of these things happen on very large scales in so-called communist countries. They have all of them except private ownership of the means of production, right? In certain communist countries like the USSR, industries and infrastructure were publicly owned. So you can have all of these different aspects of so-called capitalism except for the one most important one that people tend to, that, that, that technical definitions, so-called definitions, tend to point to. On the other side, we can see the mirror image in early farming villages, right? Neolithic villages or present-day simple farming villages in, uh, in rural societies. These farming villages have the opposite. The means of production is land and livestock, and those are privately owned, right? People will own their own farming and gardening plots, they'll own their own livestock, but they have no currency. The exchange is barter, not uh, through money. They don't have wage labor, they don't have uh, capital accumulation, banking, industry, and so on. So in this case, we have, we have the opposite. We have private ownership of the means of production and none of the others. So in that case, we can ask, well, is that capitalism or not? But the point is not to say that's capitalism or that's not capitalism. The point is to see that it, the label simply doesn't apply in real life. It just doesn't matter. And this is why using simply private ownership of the means of production as the one criterion for defining what is capitalist or not capitalist doesn't work, right? There is no way to come down to one single criterion because that, that will always break down. And basically, there's nothing that groups all of these practices together. There's no theme in common. There's no idea in common unless you simply take greed 
or the desire for gain to be the sort of overarching connecting thread of all of them, right? All of them involve somehow people seeking out gain for themselves. Now, that's perfectly valid, but again, greed and the desire for personal gain can be found anywhere, right? It's, greed is one of the seven deadly sins. It's part of human behavior, and you can identify it in all kinds of societies and contexts. Now, one could still possibly respond by saying, well, that just means that capitalism is not located in a place, right? There's not a given society where you can say capitalism is here or this is a capitalist society, but rather capitalism is a phenomenon that can be anywhere, that can show up in different forms, manifest itself in all kinds of different places. Now, if that's true, then, of course, one has to ask, well, then how does one recognize when one looks at a place or a time or a phenomenon, how do you recognize whether or not you're seeing capitalism in a practice? You have to, of course, track what you consider to be capitalist. How do you know an institution is capitalist, a practice is capitalist? Well, you can only do this by tracking whether different ideas or practices are capitalist, and you have to define what you mean by capitalist. What is this quality of being capitalist? But if you ask any writer or observer or theorist today, they'll say, well, capitalist means it's the quality of capitalism. <laughs> it's practicing capitalism. So it immediately becomes circular, right? If capitalist, if capitalist means capitalism and capitalism means capitalist, then again, you just have a nonsense category. It means nothing. But there are older meanings to the word capitalist, which I'll get to, which are very different from what we might initially expect or assume. So some sort of circularity is inherent or unavoidable, even among scholars who talk about capitalism. And I realized this first when I was in a seminar at Columbia University with a very good and very distinguished scholar of economic and social history. And she asked us in a seminar, quote, is slavery capitalist? And she meant this as a question for discussion. We were supposed to sit there and, and go back and forth on our opinions. Is slavery capitalist or not? And people said things like, well, does it involve large-scale reinvestment? Does it involve improvement or not? Uh, does it, you know, are banks involved? These are the sort of questions people ask. They sort of looked in their checklist and said, do we see this or that in connection with slavery? And hence, is it capitalist or not? Well, my reaction was, wait, isn't this backwards? Isn't this a backwards question? Isn't the question really just what do we mean by capitalism? And does the practice of slavery fall under that category or doesn't it? Right? And the reason I saw it as backwards is because slavery is a practice that is clearly historically defined at least in the society where we were talking about it. It's something that was encoded in law. It was acted out in custom. We can look at the laws. We can look at the account ledgers. We can look at the memoirs, and we can know what did it mean in this society to be a slave? What powers and vulnerabilities did a slave have? What powers and limitations did a slave master have? Who was a slave and who wasn't? These things were discussed and recorded in writing. The same was not true of capitalism. Nobody in the American South in the 19th century was talking about capitalism. It was not part of the conversation. It's an abstract category that we retrospectively project onto them. 
And if that's the case, then the real question is, it's what do we mean by capitalism? It's not, is slavery capitalist? And then afterwards, I had a further realization, which was, if the category of capitalism is so undefined and undefinable that leading scholars can't agree or can't even have a productive conversation about whether such a major important historical practice as slavery fits in it or not, then it's a useless category. It's a category that's failing to do its job. If you can't account for what is slavery, how does it work, what is its nature, when it's such a well-attested, well-documented practice, then clearly, at best, you're trying to fit a square peg in a round hole. But really what you're doing is you're trying to use a term as a tool when it clearly is a useless tool. You're trying to use a broken knife. Okay. So really, I think what this illustrates is that, in fact, capitalism is not a historical phenomenon. It's not a process. It's not a practice. It's not a regime. It's just a web of vague associations that we choose to imagine as being somehow a coherent story. And in this way, it's a classic myth, right? And myths are not necessarily true or false. They're stories that we use to try to explain and make sense of the world. And these myths can help to suppress ambiguity. They can help us to avoid the uncertainty and confusion of complex events and complex motivations, right? It feels clarifying and simplifying to say, well, people did this because it was capitalism, right? People, people founded this colony because they were capitalists. And it attributes intentionality to that thing, to the story itself, right? Capitalism is one of these things like the Enlightenment that sort of takes on a power to change events. If they can also, myths can help to assign blame for what is bad, right? We can say, why did the Cuyahoga River catch fire? Because of capitalism. It's, it's the perpetrator. It also, conversely, can help you to justify and defend people's actions or justify and defend the status quo. You know, why do people have to pay to go to the doctor? Because it's capitalism, because we live in a capitalist society, and to do anything else would be going against capitalism. So capitalism is a myth that does these things. It imagines a system with designs and aims of its own that can be assigned blame or credit, and that can explain the complexities of the world in a sort of uh, psychologically satisfying way. But as I said, it's terminally ambiguous because it is a myth and it has always been nothing other than a myth. It has never had a clear meaning, right? So, so in ordinary life, when, when a, a, the meaning of a word is unclear, it's ambiguous, it's being debated, a simple thing you can do is ask, well, what's the derivation of the word? What did it mean originally when people started using it? And have we somehow gotten confused by changing meanings and usages? That's a normal thing to do. Well, in the case of a terminally ambiguous word like capitalism, you can only understand what people are doing with the word if you look at where it came from because it doesn't have and cannot have a clear shared meaning. It only has a history. It only has usage. So we have to look at where this word came from, its etymology. 
and see if this confusion or irresolution has a, a, a sort of purpose behind it. Is there a method to the madness? Well, the word capitalism, of course, derives from a root word capital, right? And capital, of course, comes from the Latin for head, right? So it, it means important, primary, at the top. So in the High Middle Ages, people started to use the word capital to mean something important. And very quickly, the budding finance industry in Italy and then in the Low Countries started to use the word capital as a sort of industry term to mean first simply money, right? Money or currency is capital. It's, it's your most important possession. And then it, it also was applied a bit more broadly, and it became an industry term to refer to money and other things that you might possess that can also generate money, particularly land, and also other things that might generate a profit. Ships, especially, workshops, warehouses, things you make profit out of. So that's how it became this sort of umbrella term. So people had capital, they acquired it, they used it, but it was only much later in the Netherlands, in the mid-1600s, that people invented the word capitalist, right? And capitalist, so it started in Dutch, and then in the 1700s, it also was adopted into French, capitalist, and then into English in the early 1800s. And what capitalist meant was it was a noun for a certain type of person namely a person who has a lot of capital. That's what a capitalist meant. And this is the word, this is how that word was used in English right up through the 19th century. A capitalist is a person with a lot of capital, and so a person who lends a lot of money and tries to make profit or invests in business ventures is a capitalist. And people could use this word in a neutral way, or sometimes they could use it in a negative way, sort of a disapproving way of referring to a wealthy person who has a lot of power from their, their wealth as, as a capitalist. It was only in 1850 that the word capitalism was first used. And it seems it was coined in French in a letter by the socialist activist and politician Louis Blanc. So Louis Blanc was a socialist who had been in and out of exile, and like a lot of socialist uh, theorists, he deplored the inequality and the poverty that he saw around him in the growing industrial society in France and other countries in Europe. And he took part in the 1848 revolution in France, and he tried to make economic reform and redistribution and poor relief an integral part of that revolutionary movement, as a lot of socialists did. And this term and this notion of socialism was very new. It seems that it was coined only a few years earlier in 1833, right? So he was part of this new school of people who in some way criticized poverty, inequality, exploitation of the poor, who considered himself a socialist. And he got involved in an argument with a liberal philosopher named Bastia, who criticized these socialists and argued that the law should not be used as an instrument for reshaping or redistributing the economy. 
right? So, so he believed that that was in, in excess, it was uh, an improper use of the law and the power of the state. And so he had this whole critique of socialism as a movement. Well, in 1850, just two years after this revolution, Louis Blanc responds in a letter and says, well, you can criticize socialism if you want, but you're not neutral. You're defending an unjust practice too, which I call capitalism. Right? So you can see it's a back formation. It's an intentional response to criticisms of socialism to say, well, those things I disapprove of, those things I criticize, that I'm arguing against, they also fit together into some sort of system or philosophy which I will call capitalism. But in this same letter, he put forward a definition of capitalism, quote, as, quote, appropriation of capital by some to the exclusion of others. So this, again, is very vague and very broad, right? <laughs> Some people getting capital while others don't, basically is what he considered to be capitalism. So you could simply translate that as just inequality or as maybe theft or theft of surplus value if you read into his definition and say, well, what he means specifically is employers taking the capital that's been generated by the workers. But he didn't say that in the letter. It's This is all he says, appropriation of capital by some to the exclusion of others. And that is actually a narrow definition in the sense that it's not really, it's not describing a system, it's not describing a society, it's not describing an ideology, it's just identifying an action, a thing that capitalists do, right? So by this meaning that Louis Blanc was using, capitalism was not a system any more than symbolism or euphemism uh, is, is a system, right? We shouldn't be misled by the ism at the end or isme in French. Uh, there are all kinds of words that end in ism that can simply mean a phenomenon, an action, an experience, a condition, all kinds of things. Symbolism, euphemism, alcoholism, mechanism, right? So capitalism initially didn't necessarily refer to any, any sort of overarching system. It's just an action, and it's something that is inherently bad and unfair. It carries this this inherent negative meaning and negative baggage, right? The, ex the exclusion of certain people in favor of others, the appropriation of something that, in Louis Blanc's opinion, clearly ought to belong to someone else. So it took a long time, it took generations, in fact, for the meaning of capitalism to be gradually expanded and inflated into not just an action, but a whole system or a whole ideology, whatever was opposed to socialism or whatever socialists disapproved of could be put under this umbrella of capitalism. So the, the, the sort of definition can, can expand without limit, but it always carries this negative meaning, this negative connotation. Now, some people right now might be saying, what, but, but wait, doesn't our definition of capitalism come from Marx? Isn't Marx the big theorist of capitalism and socialism and communism? Well, if you read Marx's writings, the answer basically is no. Marx spoke constantly about capital. 
he personified capital. He anthropomorphized it. And, and you can see in the Communist Manifesto, he says capital is this force that takes things over, that pushes events forward. And uh, you know everything that is solid melts into air under this relentless pressure of capital. But he doesn't talk about capitalism, certainly not in the Communist Manifesto. If you look later into his sort of magnum opus of Das Kapital, he speaks about, again, about capital, and he speaks sometimes about capitalists in the traditional sense of people who have capital and invest capital. He talks sometimes about the capitalist mode of production. And by the capitalist mode of production, he basically means more or less the same thing that Louis Blanc was talking about, wage labor and enterprises where the capitalist is able to make profit and keep it for himself or herself to the exclusion of the wage workers, right? So this is what he refers to as the capitalist mode of production. He uses the word capitalism only twice in all of his writings. It appears only twice, once in Das Kapital and once in another shorter essay. And these two references are very vague, and he does not flesh out what he means by, by capitalism. But it seems probably from the larger context that he's basically using it interchangeably with the capitalist mode of production. So he's, again, more or less using it the same way that Louis Blanc did when he coined the term in, in 1850. So never does Marx say that capitalism is a system, certain societies are, or countries are capitalist, or that it's an ideology or a doctrine. It's simply this particular action, this particular practice, you might say, that Marx uh, disapproves of. So the use of the word capitalism, as Marx illustrates, the use of the word capitalism continued to be very rare through the rest of the 1800s. It's, it's extremely seldom used. It only gained currency and became a common term after 1900. And that's mainly due to the writings of particular sociologists, particularly Max Weber and Werner Sombart. So I've, I've mentioned Max Weber before and his, his theories about social development and the stages of civilization. He also wrote one of you know, probably his most famous book is The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Right? So he's really the first to popularize this notion that there is this sort of coherent form of society uh, that we can call capitalism. And it's popularized in America by Werner Sombart, who, who wrote the famous essay, Why Is There No Socialism in the United States? And he contrasts socialism and capitalism as these two opposing systems. And, of course, it still carries this negative freight, right? Weber and Sombart see capitalism as an unstoppable force sort of taking over the world, a lot like Marx's capital, but even more insidious. And they see it as dehumanizing, as a sort of mechanistic system that breaks down individuality. So we should note, for one thing, that by any definition of capitalism that you want to find anywhere, it's always held to be a system that at least began by the early 1800s, right? That, that is at least as old as industrialism and the Industrial Revolution. And most would put it much earlier. Like I said, Ellen Mason's Wood puts it back in the 1500s. Others put it back even earlier in the, the medieval or ancient world. And yet, 
somehow all these people were seeing it, witnessing it, taking part in it, being hurt by it, but no one seems to have known that it existed until, <laughs> until about 1900. Right? So the fact that we talk about capitalism today, that it's still part of our language, is really due to these early 1900s philosophers like Weber and Sombart. Now, meanwhile, there were what you might call conservative or liberal critics of socialism, people who opposed Marx and Marxism and people who wanted to defend existing practices and institutions against socialist reforms. And these theorists did not use the word capitalism in the whole first half of the 20th century. That was not part of their vocabulary. They spoke about free enterprise or sometimes about free markets and about the virtue of free enterprise, the productivity, the freedom of action and choice that it provides. And there's all kinds of propaganda uh, defending the free enterprise system, particularly against the criticisms of communism and the Soviet Union and its sympathizers. It was only in the 1950s that people of this ideological ilk, these anti-socialists, began to speak of capitalism and to, to say that capitalism is somehow a good thing that should be defended. One of the most important who did this was Ayn Rand, the sort of popular novelist and you might say pop philosopher who adopted this whole sort of string of adjectives for herself and for her philosophy, but who was intentionally iconoclastic. She spoke about the virtue of selfishness. She believed that the most important moral virtue was to be selfish. And she was intentionally trying to fly in the face of mainstream sensibilities and to sort of reverse people's moral language. So she, you might say, reclaimed and reappropriated this term capitalism and cast herself as a capitalist and a proponent of capitalism. And others of a more kind of academic uh, strain followed basically her model. So you have these later Austrian school economists and political scientists, people like von Mies, also starting to say, I'm a capitalist, I support capitalism. But, you know, Ayn Rand, she never really provided a clear definition either of exactly what she meant by capitalism. Again, she, she more or less used it to refer to anything socialists disapproved of, right? She was, she was uh, the response to socialism. And indeed, this was natural considering that she had grown up in the Soviet Union. She had seen her father's small business preyed upon and eventually expropriated by the Soviet government. And she basically saw it as her job to defend those things that communists and socialists attacked, right? So hence, capitalism gets flipped from negative to positive, right? So as we can see here, capitalism, as it's commonly used today in the United States, at least by its defenders, it's a positive idea that was back-engineered from a negative idea, which was back-engineered from an ambiguous, vague, and controversial idea to begin with, which is socialism. With that history in mind, it only makes sense that it's impossible to pin down exactly what you're talking about when you talk about capitalism. Now, finally, a lot of people might say, but 
how can capitalism not be a real thing? There must still be some usefulness and meaning to the term if everybody uses it, if it's constantly being put forward in academic talk, in political debates, in everyday conversation. How can it be meaningless? Well, the fact that everybody believes in something and talks about it as a real thing doesn't mean it is real, and it doesn't mean it makes any sense. You know, people, as I've talked about in other lectures, have believed firmly in things like alchemy and ghosts and witchcraft, and for long periods of time, you've had all sectors of society, from the most highly educated elite to the literate middle classes to the working people and the folk, all sharing firm, unquestioned belief in things like the power of witches to cast spells and summon demons, right? The, so these sort of crazy notions can be universally accepted. Mythology can be totally unquestioningly accepted by people who often seem as if they should know better, right? You know, Cotton Mather, possibly the smartest, most well-informed person in the entire continent of North America, passionately defended the Salem witch trials, even after their mode of gathering evidence had been uh, torn to shreds. He still defended them. Uh, you know, Robert Boyle was an alchemist, as I'll talk about more later, as was Isaac Newton. There are powers to myth, and, and there can be superficially rational reasons for believing in myths. They can seem to account for things, they can seem to explain things on a superficial level that only breaks down under examination, you know? So one could look around at the world today and compare it to how it was 500 years ago and say, how did everything change? How did the population grow? How was there this explosion of technology? How was there this explosion of knowledge? How did, did new kinds of warfare and new kinds of government all come about? How, and how did some people become so rich while others are so poor and, and suffer? All of these things can be sort of wrapped up with this one word, capitalism. So it, it seems rational on the, on the surface to say, well, there must have been this force, this phenomenon that made it all happen. It seems to provide a nice, simple explanation, and it only breaks down under examination. There are other specific advantages to this particular myth of capitalism. It has a technical sound. You know, and this is very important, I think, especially to English speakers. It has this Latinate root, you know, we don't walk around talking about moneyism, even though that's almost the same thing, uh, because that sounds dumb. Capitalism sounds smart. It sounds technical. It has this pseudo-scientific ring to it. It ends in ism. Things that are important, things that are abstract, things that intellectual people talk about end in ism. Okay? It almost sounds kind of medical. It sounds similar to words like aneurysm and autism, and, and this sort of ring, it gives it a ring of authority. The myth also creates an entity, as I've said, with a mind of its own that is somehow invisible. And since it's invisible, since it is not instantiated in any specific thing or person or place, it's, it can't be disproved. In the same way that, you know, witches summoning demons are all, it's always invisible, it's always somewhere far away in the dark of night. Or in the way animal magnetism or, or astral bodies are invisible to ordinary senses. 
It also, it has a lot of similarities to the myth of witchcraft specifically. It provides a scapegoat. So in, say, 1630, if someone had looked at bad things happening like diseases and famine and crime, they could say, well, it's the influence of the devil working through his allies, the witches. Uh, it provides a scapegoat. And, and it provides hope that somehow if you attack that one scapegoat, you're going to solve all of these confusing and frightening problems, right? If all of these bad things like poverty and inequality and war and environmental destruction and political corruption are all due to capitalism, then you can do away with all of them by just doing away with that one thing. And indeed, this is precisely the line of argument that many socialists make. And I don't say this simply to attack uh, socialists, but it, it is the train of thinking that we see all the time. Well, you'll, you'll only get rid of racism once you get rid of, of capitalism. <laughs> We're only going to stop uh, pollution and save the planet when we get rid of capitalism, okay? On the opposite side of the ledger, it also provides an excuse and a deflection, a way of abdicating one's own responsibilities, much like blaming things on witches or demons. One can say, well, it's not my fault that I'm rich and some people are poor. It's capitalism, right? It's not my fault that I get all the profit from this business that I inherited stock in uh, and that my workers are so poor that they need food stamps to feed their families, it's capitalism, right? You can shift responsibility off onto this other abstract thing. Uh, and it's a way of, of deflecting away calls for change or calls for reform. You know, you can say, I think it's wrong that X number of people are homeless and I think that housing should be free. And someone can deflect by saying, no, but that's socialism and we're capitalist, right? It's a way, it's a, it's a deflection in much the same way that people can say, uh, well, under my governance, a terrible outbreak of disease happened. Uh, it's not my fault. It's, it's because of witches. Uh, it's because of the devil. Uh, or even in modern times, there have been cases, uh, there was a famous case in 1981 where a person murdered his landlord uh, and he said, well, it was a demon. A demon made me do it. It's this invisible entity that somehow took power through my body and did this thing and therefore I'm not really responsible. So in all of these ways, uh, you know, cap the myth of capitalism can serve uh, the same function. In many instances, this might be harmless. You know, people can just shout back and forth on Twitter about capitalism and socialism and, and so on. And it's, it's just, you know, a way for people to expend a little nervous energy. But it also has costs. Certain things are also lost. You know, if we argue about capitalism and what is it and what should we do about it, do we like it, do we not like it, we are squelching other more specific conversations that we could be having, right? It's a way... Of, of erasing and avoiding questions like who is entitled to what? Who is entitled to the wealth or profit generated by an enterprise and why? On what grounds? Who is entitled to a piece of land or the ocean or the, the air? Who ought to own what and on what terms? If someone owns something, does that mean they can do anything they want with it? Does it mean there are limits on what they can do with it? Does it mean they can give it or sell it to whoever they want? Questions like, who should get medical care? Should it be paid for? Paid for by whom? 
on what terms should they get it? Who Should it be on the basis of need? Who decides what is a need? Should certain things not be owned by anybody? Right? People internationally agree that nobody should be able to claim uh, the moon. That might change, but at least formally, there's an international agreement that nobody can claim ownership of anything in space. But why doesn't the same thing apply to something someone finds deep under the ground? If I find oil under my land, who owns it? Why do I own something that, I, that was discovered 2,000 feet under my land, but I don't own the space that's 2,000 feet above my land? So all of these questions can all be somehow squelched and avoided by instead talking about capitalism. And sometimes these things can be very important. You know, some libertarians argue that taxation is theft. No one should have any authority to take away any of your money. Now, no, most people don't agree with that, but there's this gray area that has to be constantly negotiated. How much should be taken from you? How should it be used? How much is too much? Should everyone give the same amount? What does the same amount even mean? You know, or who's paying their fair share? What's a fair share? All of these are difficult value questions that have to be debated, and they're often shunted aside by instead saying that's socialism or that's capitalism or capitalism is good, capitalism is bad, socialism is good, socialism is bad, and so on. So there is this whole you know, world of difficult value-laden questions about possession, about ownership, about gain and loss that can end up being trapped and subsumed into these sort of arguments about capitalism, like the ones that came up in that little Twitter spat that I described to you, uh, stemming from Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's comments. Now, it might seem odd to go back to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and her labeling of herself as a democratic socialist, her labeling of a workers' co-op as democratic socialism, because surely that's just a superficial little Twitter outbreak, like happens all the time. Surely our public conversations on mass media, in newspapers, uh, in academic institutions, must be at a higher level, right? Certainly we must have more sophisticated ideas and more nuanced and precise conversations than that. But I would argue in my experience that's not true. It really, no venue seems to be having a more sophisticated conversation about these questions than Twitter. And I attest this again because I have seen very well-informed, very smart, very persuasive scholars use skepticism, careful analysis when it comes to certain myths like the myth of race, but not when it comes to socialism and capitalism. People are still kind of flying blind when it comes to this, and I think that this is a large part of why our conversations keep running into these kinds of brick walls. So that's my argument put forward as briefly but as comprehensively as I think I can about the myth of capitalism and why it's a myth that we really should discard. I'm sure that there are many other points and counterpoints that I failed to cover, and I'm sure many 
different people will react and and process what I'm saying in different ways. So I encourage you again to comment on SoundCloud or to email me at historiansplaining at gmail.com and tell me what you think. Uh, tell me if you have any uh, responses or if there are other things you are interested in hearing about or want to tell me about, uh, please contact me. And again, if you want to hear more lectures, including all of the myths of the month, then some are patron only, and I encourage you to go to my Patreon page, also under Historian Explaining. Thank you. Oh,